Last week, I began a series with you. I just leave the clock up here. There's a clock right here, in case you guys don't know, right there. It's 10 o'clock. <laughs> I have a whole lot of material today, and I was wondering how I would get it in, and now I'm not worried anymore. How many of you had any trouble at all, real honestly, with Time Change Sunday? Somebody's going to walk in in about uh, 15, 20 minutes, and when they do, I'm going to point and you all look, okay? It's just fair that way. How many of you had trouble with Time Change Sunday? Anybody have trouble with it? How many of you are just so thankful? It used to be like a major deal, right? Y'all remember that? When you have to set it and, you know... And they always told you, like, it changes at 2 in the morning. Like, you're going to wait till 2 in the morning to wake up and, you know, set an alarm so you can change it. You always change it the night before. But, but there are always people, when you had it manually, I'm so thankful for Apple Watches and iPhones. And, and the only thing, I got to tell you all the truth, last night, I'm, like, thinking, oh, man, I hope this, like, works, you know. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm kind of that age where I don't totally trust technology, if that makes sense. And I'm like, I hope this works, and it automatically rolls up and does what it's supposed to do. And I went in our, one of our back bedrooms. There's like an old-timey, like, battery-powered clock. And I got it and brought it by my bed. And I didn't set the alarm on it, but, but, but I, I just thought when I wake up, I'll look at that clock. And if it's different now or different than the, I'm good. If not, I got to hustle. So, uh I'm glad, I'm glad this one's over, and now we get another hour of daylight, so that, that's the cool part of that. Last week, we started this series about seven days, the last seven days in the life of Christ, and I, I told you last week a few things about it. When you look at the last three years of the life of Christ, they've been described as a year of obscurity, where he wasn't well-known, then a year of popularity, as different things happen, more people caught on, then the last year could be called the year of opposition. Now, the reality is none of those words are ever exclusively right. There are people who opposed him right from the start, and there are people who loved him all the way to the end. But generally speaking, that was kind of the picture of what was going on. The last week of his earthly life composes about a third of the Gospels. Isn't that amazing? A third of the Gospels focuses in on one week. And the book of John takes about 50% of its words to speak about that last week. Now, we're going to look today at Matthew 21. The story of Jesus cleansing the temple is also in Mark 11, Luke 19, and John chapter 2. And I'll speak to those in just a moment. But read with me Matthew 21. Read from the New Living Translation. It says this. Jesus entered the temple... And began to drive out all the people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. He said to them, the scripture declares, my temple will be called a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. The leading priest and the teachers of religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children of the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. Isn't that a great Sunday? It's actually a Monday, but you know what I'm saying. It's a great time together in the presence of God. But the leaders were indignant. They were mad. 
And they asked Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Yes, Jesus replied, haven't you read the scriptures? For they say you've taught the children and infants to give you praise. Then he returned to Bethany where he stayed overnight. I probably won't say anything more about that last verse. I just think that's so funny. It's just kind of the reality of life or whatever. There's this huge blow up that happens in the temple. I mean, this is massive. This is like this is like a lifetime experience. This is like, do you remember that? Do you remember the winter of 07? It's one of those kind of things. Do you remember when Jesus did that right before he died? And I mean, it is massive, but I love the way the story concludes. And then he went back to Bethany where he stayed overnight. Like, life goes on. No big deal. It just kind of seemed funny to me. Jesus cleanses the temple. It's recorded in all four Gospels. It appears to be two separate occasions. One author that I read said he thought it was three. I had trouble tracking with that, but probably two different times. One near the end of his life that we read about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the other time in John, it appears to be at the beginning of his ministry. We don't know for sure. And here's why. It's because people of this day and this time do not write like we write today. Probably most of us, if we're telling a story, we try to tell it in chronological format. But we've all seen this literary device where someone gives you a glimpse of something that's coming up early, and they go, oh, and we'll get back to that later. And then they dive back into the story. So I don't really know for sure. It's, it's not clear. People have different opinions. It, in my opinion, it doesn't matter how you view it. They, they all have similar storylines for us to look at and to learn from. Now, Mark does say something really interesting in verse 11. This is on the Sunday, on Palm Sunday. Mark says that when Jesus had, had, they had finished, you know, yelling Hosanna, throwing down the palm branches, that before he left Jerusalem, just a, a couple of miles back up to Bethany, a few miles back to Bethany, before he did that, he went by the temple. Mark 11, 11 tells us that. Matthew and, and Luke don't tell us that detail. And some people who are very small-minded, in my opinion, get very hung up on this kind of stuff. They go, oh, there's a discrepancy. You know, Matthew said he didn't say he went by the temple. John, John and Luke didn't say anything about it, but Mark said he went by the temple. So which one of them's lying? Okay, just slow it down a little bit. How many of you know that if we ask four people in this room to tell a story, that it's very probable even, not just possible, that we would have a few different details of how the story happened? If we had four of you get up and tell about uh, what we did last year for Labor Day, if you had kids, one of you might say, and we had like a little... Uh, animal thing out there the kids could go in and play with the animals another one of you that doesn't have kids might leave that out of your report altogether so who's lying neither one of you one of you might have said they had the best snow cones there they were incredible another one of you said snow cones I didn't see any snow cones I'm just telling you it's not hard to figure this out they're just telling different stories they all have the basic same big idea, but they have little different details along the way. Now, 
Jesus examined the temple and he comes out to cleanse it on Monday, I think he was just sizing it up. Now, there's a beautiful thing that this tells us about the work of Jesus. He wasn't doing this out of spontaneous anger. It was a deliberate, thought-out action. It's something he did intentionally. He looked at it the day before, according to Mark, and when he came back, he took action on what he saw. Now, the Bible tells us this, and I wish I had a lot more time for real to go through this. Maybe I'll come back later and do a whole series on the temple and how it connects to us and what we learn from it. But the Bible tells us now that you are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place. He doesn't live in the building. We call this the house of God. And I think sometimes that does more misunderstanding than good for some people because people say, well, I wouldn't do that in the house of God. Then don't do it outside this room because you are the house of God. I think there's something valuable, like I said to you all ago, try to reserve this space as a place where we primarily focus on connecting with God, spiritual growth, words of encouragement, things of that nature. If you want to talk about weather or sports or whatever, do that out in the foyer. Now, just real candidly, God's not going to strike you dead. You're not a heathen if you happen to talk about something in here. That's, that's not it at all. I'm giving you a principle that when you designate this as a place to converse with God, that it probably will help you to do a better job of that than if this is in just whatever kind of room. I will tell you this, that if you get more angry about what other people are doing that you think is not right than you do about examining your own life to make sure you're in the faith and following Christ, there's a little problem there because God doesn't like the self-righteous or the sanctimonious. That's like a New Testament theme. That's like the Gospels in a nutshell. The people who are, you know, it's right here again. Jesus, tell those people to stop worshiping you. They're not doing it right. Well, if they don't, the rocks are going to cry out. Jesus, tell these little children to stop it. Out of the mouth of babes comes worship. You know, I think we have to to be careful that we maintain, and listen to me carefully, a spirit of honor and reverence for God everywhere we go. And it should be displayed, but not everybody's got the same awareness that you have. Don't beat them up because of that. Encourage them. Strengthen them. I had a conversation last week about a man in a spiritual position who was talking about someone who, who wore a hat in the church, a, a, a boy. And I always thought it's kind of weird that if you look at Old Testament stuff, that men did wear hats, at least the yarmulke, and, and women had to have a veil on, and, and, and that was right. Now it's kind of like, don't do... And I, I, I get it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not dumb. I'm not without thought. But sometimes we get so caught up in the minor issues that we miss the big issue. I got to go here for a minute. I, I'm, I was debating, but I got to. I would rather people come in here 
dress inappropriately than stay outside and never come in because they don't have appropriate clothing, whatever that means. Now, do I want them dressing like that five years after they've been here? No. Are you tracking with me? So Jesus cleans out the temple. But here's the issue for us. We are now the temple of God. So our job is to keep our hearts clean from sin. I can tell you this, as a church, we have a commitment to keeping our building looking as nice as we can too and doing repairs and keeping it up to date. And deferred maintenance will destroy any building. So we try to keep everything up to speed and we work on it all the time. Pastor Mike, that's part of his assignment. And if you knew all the things we have to do on a regular basis, it would probably make you choke pretty hard. I'll give you one right now. We're getting ready to put a new AC unit in our youth building because it's our new youth building that we built back in 2004. It's our brand new youth building. <laughs> Anybody besides me feel that way? Then you go, oh, that was 20 years ago. And so the heat and air in the main building is going to have to be replaced. It's large units. We got it bid out from some different people. One of the bids, if I remember, Mike, one of them was like 70000 Is that right? to replace the heat and air for the, the main auditorium down there. We actually wound up getting one for about mid-40s, I think. So we're going to have to pay that. We'll do stuff like that all the time. We don't have to get up and whine and cry and say, oh, how are we going to do it? And, you know, our kids aren't going to have air conditioning down there this year. We'll make them. Some of you right now are going, they ought to not have air conditioning. When I was a kid, I didn't have air conditioning. I walked to school uphill both ways, five miles through the snow barefoot. We try to maintain our buildings. We don't try to be extravagant, but we try to be nice with it. But listen, the building is not the house of God. You are the house of God. And you must maintain a pure heart that is clean from all sin. And it's tragic when religion forgets its purpose. And the Jews had lost their way and they had lost respect for the temple of God. Let me go quick through some stuff here for you. The temple, and, and this, is, this is so oversimplified. I can, it can be much deeper and, 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 and in some places it may not be exactly the way I'd say it if I had more time, but you'll get the picture. The temple was designed, by the way, the temple was the permanent marking of the tabernacle. And it had these courtyard areas. Then it had inside the Holy of Holies where the Spirit of God dwelt. And, and it had a place for people to come and worship. And it was tents back before they got the, the, the temple. Then they built, then Solomon built the temple. And if you think extravagant buildings are like an irritant to God, you need to look back at Solomon's. My goodness, it was excessive beyond degree. But, but it was, there was purpose for that. And then that, that gets wiped out. Then there's another one built, and it gets hurt, and then they kind of rebuild it back up, and all these things are going on. But the purpose of the temple was a place where people could look, and it would remind them of the presence of God in their midst. It reminded them that God is here. And it was intended to be a place of worship. Now, I, I will make this point. This should be a place of worship. 
But can you, can you hear me clearly? If you are not worshiping God through the week, you're probably not going to feel him that well when you get in here. If you're coming here because, you know, all week long I've just been doing horrible things and I've been far from God, but I'm coming here and that's going to fix it for another six days, you're in trouble. Let this be a place where we gather to worship and there's something powerful about corporate worship, corporate prayer, but there's also something valuable about personal worship and personal prayer. Obviously, the temple is a place of atonement, a place of sacrifice to provide for the covering of sin. It was designed as a place of prayer for all nations. And I think this is so cool from Isaiah 56. God says this, verses 6 and 7. Read the whole chapter later. I will also bless the foreigners who commit themselves to the Lord. By the way, no one ever thinks they're a foreigner. Because we're used to being where we live, and we think everybody else is a foreigner. And I can remember going to to other countries of the world uh, in my lifetime, especially early on, the first time I was doing that, and somebody asked a question like, you know, who are the foreigners in the room? And I'm looking around to see where they are, because I'm not one. Oh, well, wait, but I am. I'm no longer on my home turf. I'm in a different country. I'm a foreigner. Listen. Every one of us in the room, we are the foreigners. But God says, I will bless the foreigners. How many of you are glad to be a foreigner now? I will bless the foreigner who commit themselves to the Lord, who serve him and love his name, who worship him and do not desecrate the Sabbath day of rest, and who hold fast to my covenant. I will bring them to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifice because my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. You got to understand this. I, I should have gotten you a diagram, but but think of a big a big wall, and inside the wall there's a lot of land, and there's a few little buildings in there. Inside the big wall, four walls. Inside the big rectangle. One of the largest areas of land is called the court of the Gentiles. Wow. God was making provision for us. Even back in the Old Testament. Well, I thought that was the Jewish God. I thought Jesus was the Christian God. No, 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 no. Back then, God was saying, and here's the problem of what's happening while Jesus cleansed the temple. You know where they were doing all this transaction of business? In the court of the Gentiles. So the place where Gentiles should be able to come and worship God and should be able to come. They couldn't go into the Jewish area because they weren't part of that, but there was a place for them. And later on, Jesus tore the veil in half opening up, giving access for all of us. But at this point, we're coming in, and, and we're, we're, in the, we're, we're in the property. We have a place. And God said, part of the temple is as a place of prayer for anyone who wants to come and pray, regardless of where they're from. It was intended to be a place of ministry. Often we read in the New Testament of ministry occurring at the temple. 
maybe on the way in or somewhere, but ministry happening there. And we read in this story, Matthew 21, that ministry happened at the temple with Jesus. But here's the problem. The temple was a reminder of God's, God, God's presence among his people. But secondly, the temple had become a place of commercial exchange. Point of interest for you, by the way, this wasn't the first time or second time that the temple was, was, clean, uh, was cleared out and cleansed. It actually happened under the reign of King Hezekiah. And it happened for him right at the start. Second Chronicles chapter 29. Let me read just a couple of verses here. Uh, 1 through 11 is the whole passage, but I won't go into all of it. Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king. That's kind of funny, isn't it? In America, we have presidents who are in their 80s, but Hezekiah was king when he was 25. Just, just, just a thought. Our last two are the two of the oldest. So, And he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. Now listen to this, verse 3. In the first month of the first year of his reign, I love that, he opened the door of the temple of the Lord and repaired them. In the first month of the first year of his reign, Hezekiah says, we got to get the temple back in order. He goes to the Levites. He says, consecrate yourself now. What a good word. And consecrate the temple of the Lord. Remove all defilements from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord our God, and they forsook him. I mean, can you be a little more plain spoken? Hezekiah, okay, he'll go on. They turned their face away from the Lord's dwelling place, and they turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offering at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem, has made them as an object of dread and horror and scorn. Can you imagine what that would have been like? And he goes on, verse 9, this is why our fathers have fallen by the sword and why our sons and daughters and our wives are in captivity. And he says, verse 10, now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord. In verse 11, do not be negligent now for the Lord has chosen you to stand before him and serve him, to minister before him and to burn incense. The temple, though, had lost its place in the time of Jesus and it had become a place of commercial exchange. It was all about the Benjamins or the Caesars back in that day, I guess. The temple was a huge religious complex with on Passover hundreds of thousands of pilgrims coming from all over the world to offer sacrifice. Now, typically the, the offering that would be given at Passover would be a lamb or possibly a goat. Now, you know in the sacrificial system there were different animals that were used and I think somehow that had become infiltrated into this too. And we'll see that in a minute because there are people who are selling doves that are there. Every Jewish family would need to offer an unblemished animal as an atonement for sin. Now, according to historians, here's the problem of what happened here. Everything that started out good and as a way of helping people in their worship of God... Somebody in the leadership capacity all of a sudden saw a way to monetize this. Yeah, 
you probably don't fully understand how hard I push against us monetizing anything here at the church. Sometimes we do stuff that costs money, and it's, it is what it is. When we buy a book like the books I bought, and I say they're out there, they cost us 10 bucks and some change, pick one up. If you got some money, you can give it. If you don't, pick one up anyway. I think that's the right way to do it. Can somebody help me with confirmation? And the Lord will help us. We got to be smart with our money, not foolish. But, but, but I, I just have trouble trying to figure out how do we make money off of people. God's plan for su- supplying for the needs of the church is called the tithe. Works really well. When you do it, it blesses you. Every tither said. God has a way of making it work, making it stretch. Sometimes it goes beyond human understanding, but he makes it work. It blesses the work of the kingdom when you do that part. And when you start, when you don't have a whole lot, it's a whole lot easier to do it when you have a lot. Here's the good news about tithing. The more that you receive of income in your life, the more you're able to give and the more you have left over. How many of you wish the U.S. government would come with a system kind of like that? But here's what would happen. People would bring their, their animal for the sacrifice. They had to be inspected by the priest. Many historians record this as having developed through the centuries, and especially by the time of Christ, that this was a very, very common, probably almost universal practice. When someone came in and they brought their, their little lamb with them, it had to be a one-year-old, a yearling. When they brought that one-year-old lamb in with them, the priest would look at it and go, there's some blemishes here. But fortunately for you, we have some over here. And we will take yours in trade, and you give us so many shekels, and then you can go offer the perfect sacrifice. Now, here's what historians say would happen then. They would take that lamb that they had declared to be unclean and put it back over with the others. So the next pilgrim that showed up saying, I have a lamb. No, yours isn't, your blemishes, but we have one over here. And they would take the one that they had declared unclean and now give it to someone as being clean and perfect. Don't play games with God. Have a sense of his holiness. Have reverence for who he is. How horrible. So that's why when Jesus walked in, he was so angry that he started throwing things over. You know, uh, anybody in the room ever like to watch old westerns? Let me just see your hand if you're an old western kind of kind of person here. Not not that we believe in it or participate, but every old western movie has a saloon, right? That's where everybody kind of goes, and normally they're playing poker at the table. It's just old westerns. That's the, that's the lore. That's how it goes. And almost always in most movies, somewhere along the way, somebody is going to say, you cheated. You called me a cheater, blah, 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 blah. And then always somewhere in that process, something's going to happen. Somebody's going to knock the table over. And then it's on. Guns start firing. 
There's something about knocking a table over that is a statement of absolute disdain. Jesus knocks the table over. It says there that he also uh, knocked over the chairs of those selling doves. I think it's interesting. That's the only animal that's mentioned in this recording of Matthew. Also in the others, kind of a very similar thing. John in particular And it's because there was this concept or this mindset of trying to figure out how to cheat everyone on every corner. Now, let me tell you this. The original intent of these days of worship, these holy days, there's seven of them, three major ones, um, plus Day of Atonement. Uh, There's Passover There's the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, and then there's the Day of Atonement. And these were all days when all Jewish people would gather and and give sacrifice to God, worship God, and honor God. And basically, it had been designed by God as a frequent reminder of who he is, of his holiness, and the need for giving God your best. But the problem is, and here's point three, abuse and neglect became common in the in the temple. The, the priests were controlling the trade of animals. They took advantage of people. In every possible situation, exploitation was occurring. And here's the problem. The symbol had become bigger than the substance. In other words, they were checking all the boxes. Yeah, we got, we got the lambs. Josephus, an early historian of Jewish uh, history, he says that, that at one in particular, there was over 200,000 lambs that were brought to Jerusalem for Passover around the time of Christ. That would probably represent 2 million people. So they were checking all the boxes. Did you go to church on Sunday? Did you say your prayer? Did you put a little bit in the offering? Listen, you can do all of those things, but if your heart's not clean, the temple needs to be cleaned out. Stop thinking that somehow by going through religious motion that you're good. Went to Passover, got the lamb, negotiated hard, got the best deal. They were trying to cheat me. And God's saying, that is so far removed from what it should be. Interesting words here. Jesus drove out all the people who were buying. We we all get that, right? Or not buying and selling. We get the selling part. People are buying and selling animals. The ones who are selling, they're cheats, they're crooks. Yeah, throw them out, Jesus. But he also threw out the ones who were buying the animals. Wait, what? These people are trying to do right. I read this from a few different commentators, and I believe this is accurate. Jesus was also making a statement here of how he was, he was putting an end to that system and creating a new one. Now, Jesus didn't come to break the law. He came to fulfill the law. So he wasn't, he wasn't disregarding it. He was replacing it with something better. And I'll get to that in just a moment. But we see that what had happened in the minds of the Jewish people, of the priests, they had allowed the symbol to become bigger than the substance. They were doing the right form, but they had lost the function. 
There are people all over America today who are in church right now because they think somehow it gets them a couple of gold stars on their chart in heaven. And I'm glad you're here. Don't, don't misunderstand it all. But you could come every Sunday for 50 years straight. And if you don't get your heart right with God, it will be of no eternal value. And Jesus was saying this whole system has been corrupted, but I'm going to fix it. The holy days were designed to remember what God had done and renew relationship him. But unfortunately, the day that should have been filled with an awareness of God was instead filled with the anger of God. Jesus came in part to replace the requirement of the law with his sacrificial fulfillment. John says this, in the book of John, in the book of Revelation, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter talks about it. Jesus, the spotless Lamb who died once for all. We don't have to bring a lamb. We don't have to bring a cow. We don't have to bring a dove and offer it at certain points in time throughout the year. The price has been paid through Jesus Christ and his shed blood has purchased forgiveness of your sin and my sin. Put your faith in him. Jesus is the cause of worship for every child of God. Well, I'm having trouble worshiping, Pastor, because there's something impeding my worship. Maybe it's a circumstance. Maybe it's a person. You know what you're saying? You're saying that thing is bigger than what Jesus did. Oh, I wish that all of us in the room would just grow in a spirit of worship. I would love it if we could get to the place where you come into this house and you sanctify the room with your conversation and we're not talking about chit-chatty kind of stuff and whatever, but we come in and we're worshiping God as we come in and I would love it. I, in my heart, I see it. It'll be a great day when this happens that all of a sudden we're just sitting here worshiping God. Nobody's playing music. Nothing's going on, but we're just worshiping God, all of us in the room. And it just kind of grows as we worship God. It gets bigger, it gets stronger in our hearts and we're worshiping God. And then finally it's time to start. We can't start because you're worshiping God in a way that we're not going to override. How many of you want to take that step? Give me a heart of worship, God. Let me tell you, worshipers don't look around to see who else is worshiping. They just worship. Worshipers don't worry about anything except what Jesus has done for us. That's the focus. He's our cause of worship. Jesus, he's interceding for us right now. Romans 8, 34 says, who is he that condemns? Jesus had the power, but he died. More than that, he was raised to life. But he's not condemning us. He is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. The word can be used there, pleading our case. I don't know what that does to you, but just to think right now in my heart that God is up in heaven going, Father, Bruce is really a good kid. Let's help him out. 
Thank you, Lord. He's praying for me. Jesus is. Y'all get that? Is anybody blown away by that? He's pleading my case. Jesus is the one who's given us a new birth and a living hope. Let's stop walking around like everything's about to fall apart and we don't have a chance and pray that I hold on and make it because I'm about to go under and I don't see any way out. Look to Jesus because he's giving you a living hope. He's given you a new birth. It's all in him that you're transformed. 1 Peter 1.3 tells us that. Ephesians 1.7 3, 11, and 12, give these words for us. In him we have forgiveness. Can somebody shout? Your sins are forgiven. In him we have redemption. Redeemed means to be bought back and restored to proper ownership. It's what happens if you ever got foolish enough to take something to a pawn shop and they loan you some money for something you own. You own it, but they take possession. And at some point in time, hopefully you've got enough financial stability to go back. And you give them the money to redeem the item. You own it the whole time, but now it's been back in your possession. We are in the possession of God, redeemed through the work of Jesus Christ because of our faith in him. We have been redeemed. We now have boldness. We have access to God, and we have freedom in Him. Jesus cleaned out the temple because the temple needed to be cleaned out. It was filled with all kind of wrongly motivated activity. What's the condition of your temple today? I'm not talking about your physical body. I'm talking about your spirit man. I'm talking about your soul. What's the condition? Would you bow your heads with me all across the room? How many of you right now would simply lift a hand saying, Pastor, I need Jesus to clean some things out of my life today. I need his help to put me on the path of holiness righteousness and sanctification and I believe the Holy Spirit will help me to do that today would you be honest enough to lift your hand right now all across the room thank you how many others I need God's help to cleanse me yes 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 here's what the word of God says thank you the word of God says this if we confess our sins 1 John 1, 9. You all know it. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. How many of the room would just join me by standing right now and saying, Lord, I thank you for your cleansing power in my life and I yield to you. Would you please keep me clean? Would you please work in me? I, 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 I feel impressed to do this today. We don't do this all the time. We do it some. It kind of goes in spurts, I guess. But 
today, I want us as a church to make a statement that we want to be pure and clean. We're not like the money changers. We're just going to have to come in and throw our tables over and knock us off our chairs. We willingly give him access. Say, Lord, come examine my heart. Search me, O God. If there's anything that is displeasing to you, show me. Give me strength to be made clean. I hope everybody in the room will respond to this. I won't make you stay here a long time. But I think there's something powerful periodically about a unified prayer, unified effort. Today, if you would join me and say, I give access to, to, to the Holy Spirit to examine my heart, and I give Jesus my life to clean out and to make me in his image. I'd like for you to come, if you would, and gather just across the front very quickly. Would you come right now? Everybody that would join me in this commitment, Lord, come and cleanse me. You are my hope. You are my strength. If you can't get to the front, if you can't get in the front area, would you just, where you are, lift a hand toward heaven right now and say, God, I give you control of my life. Those of you that in the front, would you just lift hands of surrender to God, saying, Lord, I give you my life, and I ask that you would perfect me. I ask that you would cleanse me, make me whole, make me pure, touch my mind, Touch my heart. Oh, God, bring cleansing. Lead me in the path of holiness. Help me to have a hatred for sin in my life. Help me to recognize the destructive nature of the enemy. Help me, Lord, to flee from unrighteousness and to pursue godliness. And Lord, I thank you that our hope is in you. I thank you that our strength is in you. Lord, help us before we get to that place where there's such destruction that you have to come and, and, and violently clean us out. May we work on staying pure and clean before you, God. Because you are the source of our hope and our joy. We thank you, God, for your goodness.